Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by Carl Misner. Carl is a professor of law at Fordham Law School and is an expert in Chinese law and governments. He, he has just come out with a provocative book um, called End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise. I should note, by the way, that, that Carl is part of our public intellectuals program. Which cohort? I believe I was cohort number three. Cohort number three. And we encourage um, our public intellectuals participants in this program to write about China. And Carl has followed that and, in fact, credits us in the introduction. So thank you. Tell us why this book and why now. So I started this book over a, I mean, I finished the book over a year ago, so before any of the current events that make people, made people so interested in it. But when I started the book, I was just interested. I was, in, I was a newly tenured professor at Fordham Law School. I had been writing for a more narrowly specialized audience about Chinese legal issues. And I figured I wanted to sit back and think about the big picture direction of where China was going. And so this is my, op my effort to do so, thinking not solely about legal or political issues, but also thinking about economic, thinking about socioeconomic, and thinking about religious and ideological trends as well. You were working on it, I saw in the introduction, for 10 years. Though. Started it back in 2000, and I was a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and I had started uh, working on it then, uh, sort of had the introduction together, you know, sort of general outlines, but there's no incentive in the professorial profession, in the law professor uh, world, for doing books that are more aimed at a general audience. So the early years of my law school career were focused on these narrowly tailored legal articles, and it was partially thanks to your program, the PIP program, that helped introduce me to a wider range of China experts and also encouraged me to write for a broader audience. What's extraordinary in the book is you kind of foresaw in the book, written before the last few weeks, you foresaw the ending of term limits. I certainly talk, talk about that and talk about the way you view kind of the consolidation of power that's going on in China today. Sure. I would, if I was reducing some of the political trends that I'm seeing to sort of a single sentence, I would say it is political erosion. It's a breakdown of the political norms and institutions that had been built up over the course of the reform era. Early 1980s had seen a range of uh, party leaders themselves institute a range of reforms precisely because they wanted to move away from the turmoil of the Maoist era. The term limits on the presidency were one such, uh, one such development. Uh, others included avoidance of anything res regarding resembling a cult of personality or uh, an effort to move towards collective leadership, an effort to move towards technocratic rule in which the party backed off of day-to-day -day governance. And if I had to, sort of thinking about those trends, 
I, I feel like one of the key things that I've saw, seen, and it's not just you know, recent developments this year, but there's a breakdown of those institutions that has, and norms that has been continuing over some period of time. Such as? Such as the move away from collective leadership, the recentralization of power in the hands of a single individual, beginning to flirt with the whiff of a cult of personality surrounding that, that individual. Um, the breakdown. At the end of the year, it, it broke down way before Xi Jinping became president in the book. Correct. So the end of an era isn't solely focused on the political trends, because the argument of the book is that it's not linked solely to political trends. It's also linked to the economic and ideological shifts. Economically, China is moving from an era of rapid growth into one of slower growth. Ideologically, it's moving from a more open stance to the outside world that existed during the reform era to a more closed one. And politically, the ins partially institutionalized norms are beginning to break down. But you're correct. Some of these trends, they're not totally linked to Xi Jinping itself. Some of them are secular trends, such as those economic ones. But I think, as you point out, some of those political trends have become more evident and you know, they come to the surface more clearly over the last five years. Don't you think China is still successful, even with all of these trends? I certainly think that it is a very wealthy country, and I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of things happening. Uh, so yes, I mean, there's lots of, you know, there are positive developments, uh, but this is pointing out that some of the fundamental architecture that we've been accustomed to since the late 1970s, early 1980s is beginning to come undone. Give me some other examples. Economic growth is beginning to slow. After three decades of you know, rapid 10% GDP growth. As it did in Japan, Taiwan, that's South a Korea, the Asian Absolutely. Tigers. And that's actually entirely, it's, it's, that's absolutely right. That's, doesn't relate to the political system. No, it doesn't. But that's the point. See, that's the concept of there being end of an era isn't tied simply to the political. It's a point, the point is that the slowing, A, you're getting a slowing down of the economy. That's secular in nature. Simultaneously, you're having these other developments that are also taking place in terms of the ideological shift towards a more closed stance uh, in terms of. But you, you don't seriously think China is more closed than it was before, given the ability of Chinese to travel, given the ability of Chinese to read international news, given the ability of Chinese to access foreign thinkers. Well, that question is an interesting one because you said the way you phrased it was, do you think China is more closed than before? I think one of the key things to think of is what's the comparison that you're using? So, of course, well, if, if you're, you're using the 1980s, it's if you're using but if you're using 2003 or if you're thinking about an era in which the you know, the openness of the internet was much less constrained. The point is that you're seeing an inflection point where things are beginning to shift and the norms are not the same as what I mean, even organizations with sort of relatively well-established links in China, such as the U.S., you know, such as such as the National Committee of China Relations or other groups, are now in the situation of, you know, beginning to experience this new civil society law is beginning to alter the rubric that applies to many of these groups. It hasn't way. changed the way we do business. Mm -hmm. It has. It has not affected a program. So, mm. and, you know, the dealings that we have had with the Ministry of Public Security, they actually have been very open and welcoming, and I think the Ford Foundation and others who have gotten registered in China would say that they're looking to accommodate NGOs. Not saying that the law, I mean, they wanted a law of some sort. Absolutely. And, you know, it's certainly a beginning. It looked very discouraging. Thereafter, it actually has become much less discouraging. All I can say, I've heard from other groups that have decided that, you know, they've been telling me that, you know, the barriers are going up, and they're now beginning to sort of close down programs, shut down things that they 
once were able to do, and they're backing that was, off. I think in the early days. I've heard, I'm certainly correct, that some, I mean, of, some of those major organizations have now well, been able to get registration. The ABA, I believe. Oh, some of those have moved back to Hong Kong. The ABA, uh, yes, that's right, they got out. China. I mean, that's a they really left. good example right there yeah. of one such organization, which back in 2003 and 2004 were operating in a gray zone where it was sort of like, you know, registration. The barriers go up, and then they move back. Again, it's not a, it's not a universal thing where everything is getting shut down. It's just a point that the, the atmosphere is changing with respect to a, a range of different organizations. Mm-hmm. The... Um, the one part of the book which struck me well, is it was relentlessly negative. It gave very little credit to kind of the positive, the positive development. So how do you account? I mean, there's a, I actually just brought a great story from the New York Times. Four years after declaring war on pollution, China is winning. You could argue the same thing on climate change. You can argue BRI is lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But you don't make those arguments in the book. No, I think because I think if what you're trying to do is sort of provide an overall analysis of what's taking place, you have to sort of figure out, can you write the story where, you know, the decline in environmental pollution in Beijing is sort of the trend that we need to sort of, that's taking place now, but at the same time, we're having, you know, the breakdown of fundamental political norms that are taking place. I mean, removal of term limits, you know, raising Xi Jinping's ideological status within the party well, charter. When did, when did the United States start term limits? How old a country was the United States when we started term limits? So that's actually, sort of for the purpose of a comparison, that's actually a really interesting one in sort of thinking about how norms can shift. So you're absolutely correct. The presidential term limits, that initially was a norm that was developed by President Washington. President Washington. His and in fact, address, yeah. absolutely. But it was a norm. It was a norm. And in fact, and Teddy Roosevelt violated. flirted with, yeah, and then Roosevelt, the second Roosevelt, actually violated, at right. which point there was a constitutional limit that was imposed. That's right. That's right. But so that was almost 200 years after the founding of the United States. Exactly. But it's a story so, of how those norms in some situations, and it's not, look, the United States has got massive problems of its own right now, but that's a point where institutional norms can evolve from simple norms into institutions. And that's what we were looking at in the early 1980s. That was the hope that we were looking in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. That's, I agree, like back in 2003, so I was the sort hope, of- What was the hope? The hope was that you had these partially institutionalized norms. China was never going to move towards any sort of democracy. You know, that was off the table after 89. But you could have imagined a situation in which those norms became more and more institutionalized, not norms about succession of power, norms about you know, the retirement for top officials. But in exact contrast to the sort of example you just made, it wasn't just that that partial norm against you know, the, the, the norm and the term limits in the, in the Constitution, it doesn't, in the Chinese Constitution, it gets erased. And then the succession norms that... Just as Franklin Roosevelt decided at a time of crisis he needed to stay right. in term, you know, in office for many years Correct. to come. And then he, he went, he went, he would have gone to the end of his fourth term except God intervened. Right. You know, I mean, it's... Right. What, what, what troubles me is we, we lack context. In other words, there, right. is, there is discussions without drawing parallels to other places. Well, yeah, my, there, there, I, I, there's I, none 
There's no focus on the positive developments, no focus on administrative law, no focus on it's easier to access cases now in China than it is in the United States. You can get precedent. You can read cases online more easily than you can in the United States. Where is that in the well, book? I would just respond to that by saying you're correct. But then if you want to include that discussion, the question is, well, what about the fact that you're starting to see power recentralized in the hands of a single leader where you're potentially going to have lifetime tenure, you're seeing the whiff of a cult of personality, and the context that I'd respond in that situation is, what about before 1978? I mean, I think you read these developments right now, and you don't just say, well, let's just think about what happens in Japan. With it. I think you have to look at China's own background. I think that's the context, and that's why it's so worrying. Mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah. this has given you yeah. a flavor. <laughs> this has given the listeners a flavor of what is a very provocative book written by our public intellectual and professor of law at Fordham, Carl Misner, called End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise, published by Oxford University Press. So Carl, thank you so much. This has given you a whiff of what the book is like. Thank you so much.